0: welcome to for the love of yoga the podcast series where we explore yoga vedanta tantra and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives for more episodes of for the love of yoga visit us at patreon.com yoga with nish may these words serve you okay So as we mentioned earlier, it is the Pluto retrograde and it's the Scorpio full moon. So for those of you who are um, excited about the astrological dimensions of our practice, it's interesting to note that Scorpio rules over sex, death, and transformation. The three most mysterious things in the human experience and naturally the three things that many exoteric religious institutions have held over our heads and used to profit you know as as uh ella certainly knows all about (laughs) um so scorpio rules over sex death and transformation of this triad death is probably the most maligned the darkest and in that same breath the most important thing to talk about pluto As you know, the name suggests, yes, good Fabricio, much like Hades is the god of death and is often seen as a planet presiding over massive spiritual shifts and inner work and transformation. It's often a mysterious planet that rules over an entire generation. Of people, So with Pluto going into retrograde and with Scorpio experiencing a full moon today, I thought this would be the perfect time to discuss the very lighthearted um, and exciting topic, death. What is death? What dies exactly? And is the end of the body synonymous with your end? So naturally, today we ask the question, what are you? What are you made of? And can that thing die? You know, so this is our exploration today, and it's a very important exploration since every culture everywhere in the world has produced its breed of philosophers, and each of those philosophers have taken up this question, this central question of what is death. For instance, Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, as Plato, his student, reports, um, Socrates defined philosophy as practicing for death. You know, how interesting the word itself, philosophy, love of wisdom, implies for Socrates a preparation for that event that inevitably happens for all of us. Preparation for death. Very interesting definition of philosophy and certainly very at home with yoga, with Shaivism, as we'll see in a little bit today. Now, uh, it's not just Plato. A few years after Plato, in 1st century AD Alexandria, we're starting to see the beginnings of the Christian philosophical traditions or the Christian mystical movements. And Jesus, as you know, is rumored to raise people from the dead. Now, a lot of scholars in Middle Eastern religion identify that there was a practice predating Jesus of pretending to be dead simulating death, if you will. So a spiritual uh, aspirant would walk into a tomb and be in the tomb for a while. And often they'd be there in a state of trance for a few days, just in darkness. Today, you know, you can go down to Westwood and pay $40 at Float Lab for a sensory deprivation. You know, I'm going to say this lecture brought to you by Float Lab, California. <laughs> so many brand endorsement opportunities. I'm not going to take any of them, sorry. But um, yes, it was essentially a very early form of sensory deprivation of Float Lab, you know. They didn't quite have the tub. Maybe they did. Who knows? But one thing is for sure, they did enter darkness and isolation, a very tomb-like setting in which they contemplated their own end. And at the end of that period, they were brought out by the presiding mystic. So some scholars into Middle Eastern religion believe that the Jesus myth and the Jesus uh, Lazarus myth has to do with that ceremony in which a minister or a presiding mystic baptizes someone not with water, not with fire, but with darkness, baptizes them with the encounter of death of nothingness, of darkness. And when they emerge from that, they are considered born again because now they've confronted the worst thing that can happen to a person, oblivion, the end, annihilation. And they've literally lived to tell the tale. So now upon coming out or emerging from the tomb, they are intensely different. You know, they're intensely changed, shifted, landed, and their new life now is defined by that instance. So this was an important initiation or baptism, if you will. And it's very essential in the Christian tradition. Ryan and I were talking about St. Francis and his um, poem. And you'll see that same dying to be born into eternal life motif. The Brahmins or the priestly elite of Vedic India were often called the twice-born. So again, you're seeing that motif of dying and being born again. It seems like, however you want to look at it, death is an essential part of spiritual practice. Um, But ideally, a metaphorical kind of death, a death in which you confront the meaning of death and emerge from that wiser, deeper. So we're going to consider what that is today. We're going to take up... Plato's definition of philosophy, we're going to investigate death and see what we can learn from it. Now the Buddha was one of the first Indian philosophers who publicly preached impermanence. He made it his mission, his life's work, to walk all over India, um, awakening the entire population to the reality of impermanence. So you see, even in the Buddha's time, there was mass cultural hypnotism to get people to forget that impermanence was a thing. You know, people were finding ways to escape the inevitability of death. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to think about it. You know today that if you go to a Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner with your family, the last thing anybody wants to talk about is death, right? It's a very real taboo. Even that word seems to frighten people. And we all of us have our pseudonyms, you know, he passed on, he's in a better place. now, you know, we have these pseudonyms to avoid saying the two most dramatic words in Shakespearean writing, he died, full stop, she died. Um, and we try to avoid that word. It's a bit of a dirty word, much like sex, all right? So those two words, of the two, death is a little scarier. And The French call an orgasm, le petit mort, the little death. And we're going to see uh, why that is in a little bit. Okay, so there's such a taboo today about talking about death, but that's not new. In the Buddha's time, the same taboo must have existed since the Buddha spent so much of his time and energy trying to fight against that, trying to awaken people to the reality of death. And in the Buddha's case, he was kept away from such realities in his princely pleasure garden. His father was very overprotective, didn't want him to become confused or deluded or scared by the world, and so pampered him and kept him cloistered. But eventually, one day, the Buddha, much like any errant, uh, rebellious uh, adolescent, does sneak out. And he sneaks out and he walks around his town. And he notices in the kingdom that he's soon to rule over, he notices that there are old people. And he's thinking, what, what, what is this? And he asks his uh, helpmate, who says to him, young prince, this is old age. And the Buddha asks, it happens to me too? Happens to princes? Happens to rich, beautiful people? And his attendant says quite sadly, yes, old age comes to us all. And before long, we'll notice the first gray hairs, we'll notice the first wrinkles. Some of you, I like to joke, are yogis, hatha yogis, so you won't see that for quite some time. But eventually, that will happen for you also. And the Buddha was shocked to discover this. Oh no, old age, it's a thing. Then, he encountered sick people, people coughing and hacking and, and, you know, dying And he was confronted with the reality of sickness, something that our society has managed to, you know, push away until the recent COVID crisis and all of that. So before COVID or whatever sickness is something that we didn't like to think about. And when we were forced to think about it, uh, look at the dis-ease it caused, the grief, the disequilibrium. So the Buddha saw sickness for the first time. It's almost as if he was seeing the first COVID headline you know he's seeing it and he's freaking out he's thinking this is a thing it can happen to me I can get sick see most of us don't think we're going to have muscle dystrophy at age 20 something Stephen Hawking probably didn't think he was going to have muscle dystrophy at age 20 something and yet it happens and it can happen to any of us there's uh, MS cystic fibrosis all sorts of things that occur but we always act as if it happens to other people (laughs) You know, so that's one of the things the Buddha was alerted to. When he saw these sick people, he asked his attendant, Me too? Princess? Beautiful people? Young people? Powerful people? We get sick too? Yes, you get sick too. Um, and it comes with old age, actually. It's a buy one, get one free kind of package. <laughs> old age and sickness. And finally, the Buddha, he walks to the banks of the Ganga in which they are cremating and performing final um Death writes, and he notices death. Eventually, this body meets its end. And eventually, priests will sing hymns over this lifeless carcass as they toss it into a fire and throw the ashes into the Ganga. Now, this really spooked the Buddha out. You know, a young, beautiful Indian prince... Um, living for the senses, living for beauty, living for youth, is suddenly confronted with the very real end of those things and to be told by his party pooper friend that, yes, this is going to happen to you too. Young princess, strong, beautiful, comes for us all. Now, this was enough to have the Buddha completely run away from home, leave behind a wife he loved and children he loved to devote himself full time to decoding this riddle. How do we escape old age, sickness, and death? Are these things just inevitable, and do we just have to deal? A few classes ago, we talked uh, about suffering, and we asked the question, why suffering? And we explored all the different schools of Indian philosophy with regards to understanding suffering, and we know there are some materialist schools like Charvaka, Lokayata, and recently Western material science, or maybe even French existentialism, that just throws its hands up and says, no, no, no. Suffering is a thing. It's inevitable. Make what meaning you can in this meaningless universe. You know, a very disappointing response, but certainly it's one response. The Buddha was not satisfied with that. The Buddha didn't want to just deal with suffering. He wanted to find a way out. So he devoted his life to doing such a thing, and he did it. And he exposits it as a fourfold argument. The first, life is suffering. (laughs) Very dramatic statement secondly and, you know this this statement is dramatic he says birth is suffering life is suffering death is suffering rebirth is suffering and the second statement is desire is the root of suffering the third statement is but don't worry there is a way out of suffering and the fourth statement is let me show you eightfold path a few practices and just do them that's really what the buddha offered he offered a way a method, a practice, and all you had to do was do it. It was entirely oriented around meditation in following the movement of the breath and figuring out what lied beyond the body and the mind. So the Buddha was famous for this theory known as Anatman theory or the lack of a self theory. He was saying, you are looking for identity in the body and the mind. As long as you look for that, you're going to be disappointed. There is no reality to the body and the mind. And today I'll tell you why there is no reality. But everything is changing. uh, 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 Anityam, anityam, sarvam, anityam. And therefore, shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, shunyam. Changing, changing, all is changing. And therefore, unreal, unreal, everything is unreal. Or void, void, everything is void. So the Buddha would say, this life, this constant flow of events... This change, this growth, this dissolution, all of it is unreal and you suffer because you take it to be real. And as long as you take it to be real, death is a very real threat. Old age is a very real threat. Sickness is a very real threat only because you think it's all happening to you. So the Buddha strategy was to change your conception of what you meant. To move it or delocalize it from the mind and body, and thus free you from what happens to the mind and body, which is death and dissolution. Very brilliant strategy, but it was premised on meditation. So, as you know, the Buddha was very careful not to over define stuff, lest you turn it into a concept, lest you turn it into a, dare I say it, religion, lest you turn him into a cult figure like some great celestial king who is different from you. You know, that's what the Buddha was worried about. He ultimately wanted you to practice and find out for yourself. So what were the Buddha's final words? You know, he's got poisoned and you know the Buddha died because he ate some poison food, much like Socrates drinking the poison. The rumor is that the Buddha ate the poison food purposefully. You know, he knew it was poisoned. He ate it anyway. And two reasons why. One, because he didn't want to offend the person offering it to him. But two, um, because he knew that if he stuck around, his disciples would never grow. They were becoming stunted in his shadow. And he knew that people had to be their own seekers, their own Buddhas. And so he's like, I'm Audi 5000. five thou. I'm clearly stunting your progress. Peace out, fam. And he eats this poison food and he's, you know, he's bailing. Now, his final words, two statements he made. One, Everything decays. (laughs) That's his first statement, which is very thematic of his whole life and his whole philosophy. And two, be a lamp unto thyself. Find out for yourself. Realize truth. You know, Swami Vivekananda, the great Indian saint, used to say, religion is realization. It's not belief. It's not dogma. It's not accepting concepts because they help you sleep at night and make you feel better. No, it's discovering for yourself the truth to which those concepts point. So necessarily, I'm going to give you quite a few concepts today. Please don't take my word for any of them. As I always say, don't believe anything I tell you. Uh, Nothing harms your spirit more than believing what people tell you. (laughs) Take nothing for granted. And at the same time, don't disbelieve either. You know, have an open approach and... Ideally, I'll be able to show you in the immediacy of your own awareness why you should not be afraid of death and what death really is. Hmm? So that was the Buddha. Now, way before the Buddha, centuries before the Buddha, there is the Katha Upanishad or the story of Nachiketa. So in the Katha Upanishad, Nachiketa is a young boy who is becoming very dissatisfied with the religion of his time. His father is a great priest, kind of like little Richard, you know, a very famous preacher and a very famous priest. And he has quite a following in India. Um, So his son, this priest, his son, is kind of skeptical of this showy, extroverted state religion. He's like thinking, this seems fake this seems unreal. So one day he gets into a little bit of a fight with his father uh, over some uh, ritual sacrifices. And his father says, ah, to hell with you, kid, Um, questioning my authority. Um, And the kid, you know, very dramatically, like a dramatic Indian boy, jumps into the fire in an act of self-immolation, at which point he is transported to King Death's home, Yamaraja's palace. As fate would have it, Yamaraj, or the King of Death, is not home. And for three days, Nachiketa, this young boy, is left waiting on the threshold of death. When the king of death returns, he's horrified to find his guest so poorly treated, so neglected. And so, to compensate Nachiketa, he says, my boy, please, please forgive me. Pardon my uh, lack of hospitality. Because, you know, hospitality is very important to us Indians. He says, pardon my lack of hospitality. Um, You can have three wishes. What do you want? Anything. I give it to you. All right, make your wishes. And he says, all right, first and foremost, uh, I want to learn a ceremony. Can you teach me this very complicated fire ceremony? And the god of death is like, you got it, kid. And he teaches him this ceremony requiring great focus and concentration. Now, remember, a Vedic ceremony can go on for many days and you have to memorize entire texts worth of mantra. So it requires some degree of, uh, not to say some, but a prodigious amount of mental capacity. So he learns it. And the king of death is so impressed with Nachiketa's innate brilliance that he names the ceremony after Nachiketa. And he says, awesome job, kid. Now what's your second wish? And he says, oh, you know, I only ask that my father can forgive me. I know I've been insolent. So sweet. And the king of death is so impressed by Nachiketa's devotion as a son, by his compassion and open-hearted love, that he would be so unselfish as to devote a wish to his dad feeling better. You know, And so the king of death is falling in love with Nachiketa. He's so inspired with him. He gives him a third wish. And at this point, Nachiketa says, I want to know the secret of death. And now the king of death is like, Crap. Um, can I interest you in something else? And Nachiketa's like, no, 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 I, I, this is most important. In life, it's most important to understand what death is. Because in understanding death, I might be able to understand life. So what's the secret of a human existence? At this point, you can imagine King Yamara just sweating bullets. He's like not supposed to reveal this to a mortal. So he tries his best, much like the devil in Matthew's gospel, he tries his best to dissuade Nachiketa away from the quest of truth by suggesting other things. He says, wouldn't you prefer immortal sons to carry on your name? Nachiketa's like, nah. Wouldn't you prefer a kingdom that yawns cataclysmic into every horizon? He's like, nah. Really? You don't want dominion over all of earth? Fine. What about celestial dancing girls? Eh, eh, I've got some Apsaras. Super cute. They'll be yours. And he's like, look, King Death, what you're offering me is good. He doesn't reject that they're bad. He says wealth, sexual self-expression, power, learning. He says, all all this stuff is good. But, and this is his response, they wear out the senses. They aren't always good. They are good, but only for a certain amount of time. Eventually, I'll get bored of them. So, Nachiketa is saying, what you are offering me is impermanent. You are offering me something that is not eternal. You're offering me something that changes, and I don't really value that. I don't really value a gift that will cease to be in a couple of years. Fabricio made a beautiful point last week that if, you know, you, you investigate your desires, you'll realize that no one is satisfied with a thing for only an hour. Because your real desire, as Fabricio beautifully pointed out, is for eternity. So notice how the Buddha is saying impermanence equals void. Nachiketa is making the same claim around 3800 BCE. This sense pleasure that you're giving me is really not worth my time because it will fade away and tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm no longer going to be interested in these things. So, give me truth or give me death. You know, that was Nachi... Nachiketa's final claim. Now, notice this. Nachiketa is being offered ways to forget about truth. He's being deluded away from his quest for truth. This is not so different um, than the predicament we find ourselves in. So, we know death makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to think that our youth, our beauty, has an expiration date. And we don't want to think that this mind and body will approach death. So what do we do instead? We obsessively chase anything that can keep our mind off of that fact. You know, so in a way, every day we wake up and pull out our phone, it's Yamaraj offering us dominion over all lands. Nachiketa is being confronted with the Apsaras or the Celestial Dancing Girls or boys. You know, Nachiketa is being confronted with... Uh, thoughts of immortality you know maybe you should build your instagram following today you know maybe you should put off your philosophical inquiry into truth and focus on some instagram promos you know (laughs) so you can tell that our climbing the corporate ladder our pursuing sense pleasures are exactly what jesus and nachiketa were wary of were strong enough to resist and that's the thing. As long as we remain in this world, there we there will be a myriad ways to escape thinking about death. That's essentially how we've structured our entire civilization. Notice your cities are um, sickeningly bright. The lights never go off in a city, so you will never have to confront the reality of darkness. And if you were go if you were to go to the rural Countryside or like a pastoral setting, like in Gangotri or the Himalayas, you wouldn't even be able to see your hand in front of you in the nighttime, you know. But here, um, it's never night. One day I was uh, on Mulholland and I was looking at the valley, you know, San Fernando and San Gabriel and all that. I was looking at the valley and I noticed that the sky was starless, you know, the LA smog, and I realized, oh. It would be wrong of me to say the sky was starless. It just seemed to be like all the sky stars were pulled down to become city stars because the city was resplendent with light. You know, one can almost hear Ryan Gosling playing City of Stars. I think there was a stunt piano player, and I almost wish that the stunt piano player's fingers were black because it was so soulful. You know? So like every time you saw Ryan Gosling play piano in that movie, it was just a black hand. I, I think that would have been great. <laughs> would have been sweet. Anyway, um, you see, as long as we live in a city that's obsessed with night lights, we're never going to confront real darkness. As long as we're continually bombarded with sense pleasure, we're always going to prefer the experience of that over an inquiry into truth, into death. Now, I want to point out a contradiction here. One, a lot of you are already finished with sense pleasure. You know, up till now, you've been, you've been chasing sense desires, you know, gratifying the senses. And by now, you're starting to realize that there are a few problems with that. Namely, there are four problems. The first, all of them are incredibly transient. So the taste of the chocolate cake upon the tongue comes and goes. Before you know it, it's gone, you know. Um, The most prolonged orgasm eventually goes away. The joy of winning an award or an Oscar or a Pulitzer, in about a week's time, that glory will fade. So the first problem with pleasure, as we've talked about together before, is that pleasure is transient. The second problem with pleasure is that we build a tolerance level to whatever it is that we're gratifying ourselves with. So people in the drug communities know this very well. No high is ever as good as the first high. And in heroin circles, they call this chasing the dragon. Eventually, trying to make it as good as it was the first time ultimately ends up killing the heroin addict because it never will be as good as the first time. In fact, every subsequent time is a little bit less good than the time right before it. There is uh, diminishing returns with pleasure. You know, so every slice of pizza is a little less tasty than the slice of pizza that came before. And you can experiment. One day you're hungry, get your favorite food, and notice how each bite becomes less tasty. You put it in the fridge, get hungry again, and then maybe it refreshes it for a while. But now you want something new. No more kava grill for you. Now you want some uh, Bibibop or something. I don't know. Notice that. Notice that not only is pleasure transient, but it also has a threshold. It benumbs you. Yes, hunger, <laughs> Fabrizio, hunger is the best spice, truly. And when that hunger goes away, as inevit- inevitably it must, we're in trouble. Now, the third problem with pleasure is that because of the first two problems, because, that it, because it's so transient and because it has such a margin of diminishing returns, it often creates excess. You know, so overindulgence usually comes about out of a frustration that pleasure isn't giving us what it's. So we really want to squeeze the lemon for every drop. And as a result of this excess, we create in us painful imbalances in the body. You know, that story I told you about overuse of ketamine eventually leading to bladder control problems in later life, whereupon uh, you can't go two minutes without needing to pee. So, a lot of people discover in their later years that there is a price to pay for all that rock and roll mayhem in age 20, 30, you know. Um, so, that's the third problem with pleasure. It often creates painful imbalances in the body because of access. Now, the fourth problem with pleasure is it is always um, a bottomless pit. So, the more you feed the wolf, the more no. it gets. It's like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. You know, so the more you gratify the sense, the more you're going to need to. And all of this creates a cycle of dependence that ultimately is an affront to your dignity as a free being. So you, deep down inside, feel yourself to be free. You feel your soul to be unbound. And yet, once you get stuck in a cycle of chasing pleasure, you feel inauthentic because now your free soul is no longer free. It's tethered by your habit, so to speak. And that's unacceptable to you on a very deep, Existential level. But now let's go a little deeper. Let's look at the nature of those pleasures themselves. What are we really seeking when we chase a pleasure? Counterintuitively, what we're seeking is oblivion. Notice we went to pleasure because we wanted to avoid thinking about death. But the purpose of pleasure is to kill us, at least for a certain period of time. So ultimately, what we're looking for in that chocolate cake is the blissful rapture of forgetting the problems of the day. What we're looking for from the orgasm is a release of the body-mind personality. And that's what's intensely spiritual about an orgasm. And as, as Ella and I were discussing the other day, that it's a release of the mind and the body. And for a moment, you're no longer Nish. No longer Nish who um, hasn't really figured out how to pay his business tax. He's kind of confused on the IRS webpage, you know? And that frustrates him because he'd much rather be teaching yoga, but no, here he is, doing the taxes. If California government is watching right now, know that I am not evading. I'm trying, I'm doing my best. Anyway, so um, you much rather be doing something else and so is these problems in your life, whether they're financial, whether they're in your relationships, as they start to hem you in from all sides, you feel this intense desire to escape. And what is that escape? It's oblivion. You know, and that's why the French call the orgasm le petit mort the little death. I mean, French magicians call it that because there's a loss of vital power. Um, but uh, the general French poetic literary public call it that because really that's what happens, you no? Know? There is this feeling of, for a moment, oblivion. Uh, with the heroine moment, oblivion. its this sweet forgetting of things. Everything just melts away. What's the tragedy? It all comes back. You know, so It's never permanent. The best drunk night will be Hangover 2 tomorrow. Hangover 2, you seen that movie? It's like that. Uh, you always have to pay for the night before, so to speak. Um, and the reason you wanted to do all of that is for oblivion. So look at this irony. You're escaping thinking about oblivion by chasing small transient forms of oblivion. Certainly something in your soul recognizes the value of oblivion. Yes or no? Oblivion seems to be intrinsically valuable to you upon our analysis so far. Let's take another example. So it doesn't just have to be the heroin um, experience. It can be a very mundane experience that you've all had millions of, not millions, but several times now, and one that I hope all of you will have again tonight, depending what your time zone is. And that's deep sleep. Almost everyone is excited to sleep deeply. Uh, You're not always excited to dream. I know I have some lucid dreaming people in here, but you're not always that excited to dream because sometimes the dream gets out of your control and turns into a nightmare, but you certainly are excited to sleep deeply. Now look at what's going on. In deep sleep, there is oblivion. There is no you. There is no dream you. There is a complete nothingness. And yet, that doesn't spook you out. It should, no? If your real fear was nothingness and oblivion, You don't have any guarantee that you're going to wake up from deep sleep. You just assume that you will. But it's not like you think about that either. So as you settle down to sleep tonight, you don't make a calculated decision whether or not to go into deep sleep. You don't think, what are my chances that I'm going to wake up tomorrow? Let me look at some stats. How many people have woken up from deep sleep? Okay, my odds are good. I'm going to go to sleep. No, you never even think about the possibility of waking up from deep sleep because you don't care ultimately you don't care. Uh, sorry, now Alicia says, now I will. <laughs> Hopefully not, Alicia. Hopefully by the end of this conversation, you will never fear death again. Hopefully. That's that's big promise, but we'll try to achieve that, yes? Um, so you're never afraid to go to, to sleep. And in fact, you welcome it. You welcome it because it is oblivion, but also the end of the irs problem you know it's the end of any problems you had so even if you have cystic fibrosis and you're in this system of health care that doesn't serve you and you're in intense pain and you feel a crippling mortality even that person gets a brief respite from all of that when they go into deep sleep you know and so deep sleep is highly prized It's highly valued. So thus far, let's look at the data. Let's see what we've uncovered so far. One, there is a deep cultural distaste regarding conversations about death. There is a tremendous escapism in order to not confront the impermanence of the mind and the body. And the Buddha's work, the work of spirituality, is to give you this kind of mortuary mentality to remind you that today matters because it very well might be your last. In the Stoic tradition of Rome and Greece, they say memento mori, which means remember death. In the Buddhist traditions, they practice graveyard mentality, which is to see the body as a rotting corpse, to see it for what it is. In Shankaracharya's poems, he advocates against lust and craving by saying, Why hanker after the body? It's maggot food, this painted sack of bones and flesh. Why expect it to be permanent when it's impermanent? You get some of that kind of body negation literature because there is an over-attachment to the body. Now in Shaivism, you see this in the form of smearing ash over the skin. So if you go to the Ganga, you'll see all the yogis and sadhus meditating covered in ash a lot of the tantrikas would meditate in graveyards and in some more extreme cases like in the left-hand path of tantra and the kaula lineages, they would actually meditate on corpses. You know, They would sit on the corpses and practice their Patanjali yoga shastra. You know, and that's to remind them that the body is impermanent. A lot of these tantrikas, not only would they wear ash, but they would also walk around with skulls. So if you look at a picture of Kali, she often has a necklace of about 55 skulls, you know, 50, 52, 55. Uh, Each skull or head represents a Sanskrit alphabet, but that's a conversation for another night. It's enough for now to notice that a lot of the deities in the Tantric tradition are funerary, are mortuary symbols. They evoke this idea of impermanence, of death. So Kali, what does she do? She dances in graveyards. She delights. She cackles hysterically at this um, humorous thing we call death. And to laugh at something is to conquer it, right? To be no longer uh, afraid of it. So Kali cackling in a graveyard, Shiva hanging out in the funerary pyres are all tantric approaches to death, reminding us that death is a thing. So you can imagine, if you have Shiva or Kali in your house, every day you wake up and you look at a dead thing. But in that deadness, there is tremendous life. Kali is dancing. Shiva is meditating with such intent. Um, So whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Christianity, whether it's stoicism, whether it's Tantra, the first job of spirituality is awaken you to the reality of death. That's the first thing it tries to do. That's the first thing we've discovered. The second thing, you are already seeking this. You know, there's something deep down inside you that values oblivion that values the end of the body and the mind. And it seeks it in limited ways, such as in the bottle, in the syringe, in the chocolate cake, in the uh, deep sleep experience. And so, let's just admit that. Right now, we hunger for death. We hunger for the very thing that we're afraid of. And when our loved ones pass away, there is intense grief. So, we're confronted with a two pronged problem. As long as we don't understand what death is, the first problem is that we fear it. We think that the death of the body and the mind is our death, and so we feel a creeping mortality with every year that goes by. Have you gone to Target and looked at the cards? Uh, They become increasingly apologetic as you go higher up the ages. When you get someone a Age 80, birthday present, it's like, "I'm really sorry that you're 80 right now." <laughs> Hallmark is, takes, takes on a very reconciliatory tone. <laughs> you know? Um, so there's fear that you will die, but then, as long as you don't solve the riddle of death, there is fear that your loved ones will die. Now this is a given. as much as you don't want to accept it, everyone you love will die, and some of them will die before you do, unfortunately. And so you're going to have to not just confront your own death, but confront the death of the ones you love. So it's worthwhile investigating what death is. All right, that's all the preamble. Now let's get into what death is. Last week, we had a very deep discussion about what is real. And the reason we need to have that discussion before we have the what is death discussion is because the answer to the question what is death in a large way depends on the answer to the question, what is real? What is this world made of? So you'll remember last week, we explored two different models. There is the model of Western material science that says matter is real. From matter, meaning from the body, there emerges this phenomena called the mind, or consciousness, if you will. So, according to the Western materialist scientist of today, and according to Charvaka Lokayata materialist of ancient India, only matter is real. Consciousness is a byproduct of matter. It's maybe an emergent property, if you will. Without matter, there wouldn't be consciousness. That's the Western material approach to the situation. And this approach will create a deep fear of death. Why? Because if the mind depends on the body, and you know the body's going to end, you kind of can conclude from that that the mind, and with it you as a personality, will also end. And now you're very frightened. So now, enter in the California longevity industry the multi-billion dollar industry aimed at keeping you alive forever. (laughs) All the supplements and all the UV, ozone, blood injections, all of that comes in because your primary concern is with preserving the body. And the reason you're trying to preserve the body is because you really feel like you are in the body. Sorry, Austin. (laughs) You really feel like you are the body. And without the body, you wouldn't be. Now, last week, we explored why that approach to reality is flawed. We talked about how 96% of the universe is unknowable. It's of the material dark energy or dark matter, which we don't understand anything about. Of the 4% that is knowable... 99.9% of that is invisible interstellar dust so it's unseeable (laughs) and of the 0.1 or some people say 0.2% that is visible meaning the atomic matter that we can see even those atoms are looking less and less real every year quantum mechanics studies them further. So before we took matter to be very real there was one discrete thing called an atom. Dalton said that. And then Ernest Rutherford shows up and is like, no, I've been shooting alpha particles at this damn aluminum foil and it's just going through. Sorry, Dalton, but most of your atom is empty space. Ah, where's the matter? I'm freaking out. Thankfully, one of his lab assistants discovered a deflection. Matter was saved. Ernest Rutherford breathed a sigh of relief. Ah, there is mostly empty space, but in the center, there is this thing called the nucleus. In it, is all the matter. And then they broke that down further and they found inside the nucleus there's protons and neutrons. And then they realized even electrons don't follow the orbits. Now, there's something called electron probability theory or probability cloud. So no one can tell you where an electron is in an atom. They can only give you a region of probability as to where it's likely to appear. So it's all there at the same time and nowhere at the same time. So look at that. What we thought to be a particle, namely an electron, is now just a probability function. It's a cloud of possibility. Hmm. Suddenly the Buddha's shunyam shunyam sarvam shunyam is starting to echo very poignantly, no? As we see into the emptiness of the atom, the emptiness of the electron, and more recently the emptiness of the proton and the neutron, um, with our muons and our quarks, and now what do we call quarks? Flavors. Flavors. We call them flavors of matter. Much like the gunas, huh? The qualities of the yogis. Anyway, not to link quantum mechanics with yoga philosophy. Not at all. We don't like to do that. The corridors of science are littered with the skeletons of dead theories. So if we link our theories to any one of these new theories, we are at risk of, you know, um, oblivion. So we don't like that. But it's enough to say that there are poetic echoes in science that seem to mirror what the yogis are saying. Down to E equals MC squared, you know, all that stuff. Now, if you look at matter as real, you're in trouble. And you ultimately encounter what we call in philosophy the hard problem of consciousness. And we discussed this in depth last week. The hard problem of consciousness is basically the inability of Western material science or neuroscience to prove that thoughts exist. They will never be able to show you a thought or an emotion or an experience of inner reality. I mean, at best, it's maybe a movement of electricity or a synaptic firing. But just a firing of the synapse says very little about thought, you know. It doesn't really map on very appropriately. Now, look at a wave. Light scares us because light is a particle and also a wave. But what is a wave? It's really just a movement of force. So a wave isn't a thing. It's a probability function. Again, it's all becoming very illusory and elusive and elusive, you know. So we're in trouble. As long as we consider the brain to be uh, emergent from the body and consciousness to be emergent from the brain, we're in trouble. But what if we flip the script? That was our narrative last week. If we instead didn't see matter as the ontological primitive, meaning if matter wasn't the basic Lego block, what could be the basic Lego block? And we posited awareness. You are not in the body. The body is in you. So this new model, not new, it's from Advaita Vedanta from you know millennia ago, but the model is this. Things have dependent and independent existence. Nothing can be said to be real that depends on something else for its existence. So if you want to say consciousness depends on the brain and the brain depends on the body, you're in trouble because the body seems to be mostly empty space. But what if you flipped it and you said, well, look at this cup. The sensation of cup uh, is responsible for the concept cup. So I would have no concept cup Unless I saw one. A lot of people don't know what a Tibetan singing bowl is until they see one. And now there's the concept Tibetan singing bowl. Is there such a thing as Tibetan singing bowl separate from the sensation of this shape, texture, color? You might say yes. And if I take it away, where? Show me. Where is the concept Tibetan singing bowl independent of the shape, sensation, and color? it's obviously an emergent property. It depends on the shape and color for existence. Now we go a little further. Is there such a thing as shape, color, and texture apart from your seeing, apart from the organ of perception known as the eyes? Is there such a thing as this sensation? And to test this, you can just close your eyes. It's gone. It cannot be shown to you to exist except in memory. And last week we explored why memory is not worth very much you know, uh, do not believe anything. And that includes the reality of memories, (laughs) you know. So don't appeal to memory. Don't appeal to concepts. Interact with your immediate phenomological experience right now. And it seems to be the case that if you close your eyes, the sense data that you call Tibetan singing bowl disappears. Okay. Now, if that's true, what do your eyes depend on? they depend on your mind, your mind to make sense of what it is you're seeing. And what does your mind depend on? Awareness. So awareness exists independently. Because of awareness, you're able to have a mind. And because of the mind, you're able to experience sensation through your sense organs. And because of your sense organs, you're able to have a world. You see? Now, this is something to be debated. And hopefully at the end of the class, we can have a deeper discussion. we just summarizing the argument but this argument basically says awareness comes first now you have a clue a clue as to how to overcome death now if you saw the body and the mind as you if you thought that you were in the mind and if you thought the mind was in the body that means you have a very real concern the body will end and if the body ends the mind ends and you end but if you flip it if you realize now once and for all that the world is in the body meaning in the sensation of the body, and the body is in the mind, then you realize that you are not in the body. The body is in you. You are not in the mind. The mind is in you. And therefore, why worry that the body and the mind will pass away? In fact, in the beginning of today's class, you experienced death with every breath. I directed your awareness to um, the arising of certain sense events. They came and they went, but you remained. You as the awareness persisted beyond the dissolution of the sense event. Follow this closely. What is your body except a sense event? You know, really think about it. Everything you know of your body is a moment of sensation in your mind. You know, you cannot show the existence of the body apart from your awareness. And not only that, there is no such thing as body except as a concept. What is the body is a mass of sensation that you experience moment to moment, do you see? So my body is nothing more than the flavor of tea that I experience now. That's what a body is, it's a sensation. And notice, all sensations arise and pass away. So that means the body as a mass of sensation Passes away, but like every other passing away moment you've experienced up to now, it seems to have very little to do with your permanence, with your awareness. That seems to persist beyond the melting away of a particular sensation. Hmm? Okay, one more argument for you, and we'll close out. This argument is from the Mandukya Karaka, it's one of my favorites, and we keep exploring it because it's very powerful and worth repeating. Because all you need is one insight. And so the more we repeat this argument, the more you interact with it, the more likely it is for you to see, not and by see I mean experience, with, the, with you know, every one of your cells, with the five stuttering into a incoherence here with the power of this argument. And it goes like this. In your experience of life, there are three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Each of them seem to be categorically different from each of the others. And when you're in one, you seem to be oblivious of the other two. So right now, you're in the waking state, most of you at least. I know for Bricio, it's 4 a.m. Most of you are in the waking state. Uh, And you're not aware of your dream life. You take yourself to be um, Nish. And you really believe that. You believe Nish and his IRS situation, (laughs) Uh, you believe all of that and you take it to be real and you're fussing and you're stressing and you're running away from stuff and you want some other stuff and you're calling up that cute girl that you met at the cafe and all of it seems so real, you know? But then you fall asleep. And when you fall asleep, the reality of the niche waking world seeds itself to the reality of the niche dreaming world. And in the dreaming world, you are no longer the niche of the waking world. You are like some dream self. Sometimes you are several different people at once. Sometimes you're a purple platypus. Sometimes, I don't know, you're a bunch of different things. Importantly, while you were dreaming, you took that to be real, you know, and and you really bought into that. Um, And it could have been a serious nightmare or it could have been awesome. You could have just won the lottery. Lo and behold, eventually you wake up and what do you realize? Ah, I didn't have to worry about that monster that was chasing me. It was a dream. You feel relieved. But also maybe you feel a little sad because you can't cash in your lottery ticket. You know, the dream money isn't worth very much in the waking currency. (laughs) So anyway, what you realize upon waking from dream is that you were never in the dream. The dream was in you. So you can relax. Your death in the dream was not really your death in your waking world. And similarly, maybe the reverse is true. Your death in the waking world might not really be your death in the dream. How do you know? There's no, true, uh, there's no uh, way of knowing that, but at least you know that when you go to the dream, your real world is dead, at least for the period of that dream. And when you wake up from the dream, your dream world is dead, at least for the period of that dream. And you might say to me, Nish, come on, my dream world is so disorienting. There's no consistency. Who I am today in my dream was different from who I am yesterday in my dream. But in my waking, there's some kind of consistency. I seem to be starting the video game where I saved it last. I I got to a checkpoint, I saved my game, and and I picked it up. So, the niche that goes to sleep with the IRS situation is the same niche that wakes up with the same IRS situation. So, you could say, niche, obviously, waking is more real than dreaming, right? But look, you make that statement based on your memory. You know, you make the statement of consistency in waking based on this notion that is memory. But, there's lots of nice psychological studies like the Loftbus paradigm showing us how illusory memory is. We misremember all the time. It's so easy to be given a memory about something you never experienced. It's so easy to lose a memory about something you experienced. Um, and so you can see your continuity is nothing more than a clinging to memory and those memories turn out to be very dreamlike after all. Feel into this. Your dream from last night and your memory of playing in the playground as a four-year-old, are they not both similar in quality in your mind? They both feel very dreamlike, very much like morning fog, no? Something very unreal about both your waking memory and your dreaming memory. So what has become now of your continuity in waking? Now, more importantly, what about deep sleep? In deep sleep, there is no waking self. Nor is there your dream self. In fact, in deep sleep, there is the complete absence of a self. Yet you remain. How do we know? Because you're never surprised upon waking up from deep sleep. You're never like, "Oh my God, where did I go?" You know, there was no discontinuity in you. There was a discontinuity in Nish, and there was certainly a discontinuity in dream Nish. But there was not a discontinuity in me. Do you see? I was not affected. By the end of Nish or the end of dream Nish, I was still there during the absence of Nish and the absence of dream Nish. And that shows you that you are not your waking self, nor are you your dreaming self, nor are you even the absence of self in the deep sleep state. You are the one who is aware of all three. And that means Death of the body is death of the waking state. It's only one of your three modes of existence. It doesn't imply the death of your dream state. Uh, The death of the mind, it it happens in your waking world. How do you know that the dream world, and the deep sleep world don't persist? You have no such data. Importantly, though, the data you do have is this. In all three states, you're present. So you are not the mind, nor are you the body. The mind and the body are sensations that arise, stick around for a while and dissipate in you. So that's from Advaita Vedanta, the argument for why you should not fear death. Once you truly understand this argument, meaning more than just an intellectual level, once you truly imbibe this insight, you should relax. Relaxation is a consequence of this philosophy. Um, And Roxanne asks a beautiful question. Doesn't that imply a self because you remain even in deep sleep? That's exactly where the Buddha and Shankaracharya disagree. We say yes, that's self, capital S. It's more you than the body or mind was you. That's the Atman, the soul or the self. Clearly something was there. The Buddha's like, that's baloney. Show me where's the self, huh? Where is it? Can't show me? Fine, doesn't exist. You know, the Buddha's theory is an Atman theory. He said there's no self. There is just the flux of waking, dreaming, and sleeping. The Buddha's argument is, why do you need a riverbed to have a flowing river? And we say, that's ridiculous, Buddhists. You need a substratum in order to have change. So that's our disagreement. Uh, Okay, beautiful. So I want to give you one more thing. Thank you, Morgan. One more thing before we close out. You've now received an argument from Advaita Vedanta as to why the end of the body and the end of the mind is not necessarily your end since you are not the waking, dreaming, or deep sleep self, right? Now, let's take one more argument. So an additional argument for you. This is an argument from yoga. So in the yogic systems, we have this anatomy the five bodies, so to speak. It's actually from the Taithriya Upanishad, uh, but the five bodies, it works like this. The uh, Matryoshka doll, you're familiar, the Russian doll where you open it, there's another one inside. Yeah, so the yogic anatomy, the picture is this. You are made up of five layers or five bodies. The outermost layer is known as the Annamayakosha, which literally means food body. The body made up of your uh, food, the stuff you eat, you are what you eat, your atoms, your matter is derived from the stuff that you ate, that's your food body, right, this thing very clearly dies, <laughs> very clearly dies, and in India, we, we see it burn, and all the fat sizzles off the bone, and we watch all of that happen, and we handle the ashes, you know, so I know that what was once my grandfather is now this jar, <laughs> so I know the annomayokosha goes away. The physical body goes away. But what about the inner body? So we say your physical body is but one layer. If you look a little deeper, you have something known as the sukshma sharira, which is your subtle body. And your subtle body is made of three things. One, it's made of your moods or energies. We call this the etheric body the prannomayokosha, or the energy sheath. So these are experienced as moods, states of vitality, uh, emotions like happiness or sorrow. These are all states of energy in your etheric body. Then, deeper than that, you have your kosha or your mental body. And deeper than that, you have the Mayokosha, which is known as your intellect body. And so I don't really want to get into what the dis- d- distinctions are between these three bodies. and We can certainly have a chat after the lecture. But for now, it's enough to note that you have an energy body. And what do you know about energy? Precisely, it cannot be destroyed, cannot be created, can only be transformed. So if the end of the physical body means your death, then how do we account for the energy body? What happens to that? Um, Now, the question is, does it just dissolute? So when the body dissipates, does the energy just go back out into the universe and you lose all sense of individuality? If that were the case, how is it that you can dream? How is it that you can have inner, interior, subtle experiences such as lucid dreaming, such as regular dreaming, such as imagination and astral projection if what you needed was a body, a physical body to do that? Clearly, physical bodies are not prerequisites for experience. You can have experience through other bodies, known as etheric bodies. In the Hebrew mystic tradition, in specifically Merkaba mysticism, it's called a zelem. A zelem literally means body. And uh, zelem, there are many different kinds. There is the uh, earth body. Then there is the yetzira body or the subtle body in the realm of yetzira. There is the bria body, the body in the realm of creation. There's atziluth body. So even in the Jewish mystic tradition, you have several bodies, each subtler than the preceding body, capable of having experiences in subtler and subtler realms. Now, Here's some data about this. Seances, I don't know, what have you. It's pretty pedestrian at this point, but we have a world of data about people interacting with subtle bodies that persist after the end of their physical bodies. Not only that, I'm looking at some of you and a lot of you have had very real, tangible conversations with subtle body entities. You know, I know some of you are rather accomplished mystics and you each have a story of interacting um, with such a being, maybe in a, in a dream setting or maybe in a much more real setting. And, and they're not that different from your imaginary friends as you were a child, by the way. The child seems to have access to a lot of these realms. And in some cases, they've made horror movies about it, right? Because in some cases, the child is given strange amounts of knowledge, Things that a child ought to not know and only could have known by virtue of being taught by something. I don't know. So it seems to be the case that don't take my word for it. Don't accept that there are beings out there until you experience it for yourself. And many of you have. But if you haven't, that's okay. I know all of you have experienced dreams. And that's enough. (coughs) Because you experience dream, that's evidence that you can have experiences without the physical body. So that's the etheric body, mental body, kosha. Deeper than that, we have the ananda maya kosha. Ananda means bliss, so it's the bliss body. Uh, but we prefer to call it the causal body. You know, the causal body. It's because it contains the seeds of all the other bodies. This is also a very interesting idea. If your causal body consists of seeds, then when this tree has withered and died away, another one will take its place, and the new body that you take. Is determined by the impressions you've left on your subtle body you know so right now you're learning yoga philosophy or whatever a lot of you feel like when you learn something it's like remembering it's like coming home to something you've always known but have never heard articulated before in this life but there's a recognition there's a feeling of having heard this stuff before how can you account for this if you haven't actually heard this stuff before it's from a past life you have all been initiated in some cases i can see very recently initiated into tantra a lot of you initiated into christian mysticism some of you some of you are hebrew mystics in your past life some of you were burnt at the stake for practicing uh magic in england a lot of you actually um and so you carry that trauma with you you carry the trauma of being persecuted for your magical practice but you also carry the desire the joy of doing this kind of work and so you're drawn you're drawn like moths into flame to any spiritual subject and that's only because of the impressions in your past life now this is the yogic approach there are past lives and there's a lot of arguments for reincarnation I won't do them here because I'm already over time and we had reincarnation in two parts So you can, of course, uh, check out the podcast or the previous recordings about reincarnation proper. We looked at Om Seti, uh, you know, uh, Dorothy, uh, Dorothy Edie, and all these examples of people with past life memories to prove that the mind is not the brain, that the mind persists even after the brain. But in conclusion, let's say this. I hope it's evident that you don't need a body to have experience. And I hope it's evidence that all experience is in you. You are not in the experience, you know? So when experiences come and when experiences go, they have nothing to do with you. So what do we do about our loved ones then? Having this knowledge might help us with a feeling of, of death. You know, it might help us get over our fear of impermanence, but it doesn't really remove grief. You might notice that. All this philosophy is well and good, but when it comes to thinking about those dearest to you, and a lot of us have suffered very real loss, what do we do about that? I mean, it's, it feels like we've lost something, even after all this philosophy. Okay, to help with that, a few things to remember. One, the end of the body is not the end of that person. And hopefully you can see now through your dream experiences the truth of that. That's why the Tibetans, the Vajrayana Buddhist tradition, spend 49 days chanting to help the etheric body find a new reincarnation, uh, one that is suitable for further spiritual work. You will continue reincarnating to do your spiritual work. So the end of the body should not be seen as anything more than a changing of clothes. You don't freak out when your loved ones change clothes, right? In fact, you're happy to see them in a new dress. And you kind of... Uh, delight in that change. You're like, oh, you look very beautiful today, babe. You know, it's a wonderful feeling to see your partner in a new pair of clothes. Why should that be different when it comes to a new pair of skins, if you will, a new set of bodies? You know, it, it, it shouldn't be different. And so you should feel about those that pass on like, A joy, a rejoicing at their newness, at their continuing of their journeys. And you might meet them again, and perhaps you won't. At this point, it's important to be very real with yourself. Are you actually grieving the person? Or are you just grieving their absence in your life? You know, so is this a selfish feeling of, now what am I going to do without them? They provided for me. Uh, They gave me this kind of emotional thing that I wasn't able to give myself, you know? Is that the grief? And if so... Let's address that. The goal of yoga is not to do away with grief. Grief is a beautiful, intrinsic part of being human. The goal of yoga is to redefine how that grief is experienced here and now. So grief exists, but it does not have to be suffering. That's the most important thing. The grief that you feel at the loss of a loved one can be a thing of sharp beauty. It can be an enlivening experience of love, the uh, symptom, if you will, or the souvenir of the love that you feel for that person, not felt, that you feel for them. And as they continue to have separate incarnations, you can rejoice at the life that they were. So one way to practice this in your real life is to look past the bodies of the people that you love. Just spend some time looking in their eyes and look past their personality to the awareness that you share. You know, be in that. And then when the body and energy fade away, you know that that awareness persists, that they didn't die. And you can still grieve for the end of that body, that mind, uh, as a gesture of love for that part of their journey. It becomes a very poignant, beautiful acknowledgement of grandfatherness you know, knowing that my grandfather was not that body or mind, you see. So that's how we deal with grief when it comes to losing loved ones. So let's close here and I'll close with two quotes. First is from the Bhagavad Gita and the second is from Star Wars. So the first from the Bhagavad Gita, what is Krishna's first teaching to Arjuna? Okay, technically, it's don't be a wimp, Arjuna. Get up and fight. Technically, that's his first teaching. Um, but in chapter 2, Krishna starts to get into the, the, the Upanishads. The Bhagavad Gita is essentially a summary of the major ideas of the Gnostic texts of India, known as the Upanishads. So the ultimate lesson, the first thing that Krishna says in chapter 2 is, Arjuna, chill. Neither he who is sla uh, no. He who thinks that he is the slayer and he who thinks that he is the slain, both are ignorant of the truth. You know, If you think you can kill someone, sorry. If you think someone can kill you, nope. Um, that's what Krishna's first teaching was. Nobody dies. Nobody kills. Uh, death of the body is not really death. He's reframing Arjuna's idea of death. Second quote, from Star Wars and we'll close here and we'll do our own Uh, Anakin Skywalker is freaking out because he's afraid he's going to lose Padme right he's got attachment and even before Samuel L. Jackson you know before he's like I've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucker. before he did his whole snakes on a plane thing he was like this kid's too old He's too old to be given the Buddhist training that is the Jedi Order. He already has attachments. He doesn't have the uh, uh, grounding in Buddhist detachment that you need to have this power, you know? Um, it'd be dangerous to teach someone with so much attachment power. The path to the dark side is quick and easy, says Yoda. Anyway, Anakin's freaking out because he's attached to Padme. They're married in secret. Uh, and he comes to Yoda about it. Good boy, you know? He's, he's, he's uh, at the end, end of the day, a very do- uh, doting... Jedi person, it comes to Yoda and he says, look, I'm afraid of death and uh, I'm getting these premonitions that I'm going to lose someone and Yoda says to him a poignant line death is a natural part of life miss them do not, grieve them do not, rejoice <laughs> for those who have returned to the force you know, and I'll leave you with that and in celebration, let us do a final OM um, for all those who have come before and for wherever they might be on their journey now. May we all meet again, only to realize that we were never parted. Only to realize that awareness is everywhere at once the same. That this illusion of individuals, of bodies, of energy bodies are but waves. Watch them come and go. Please, immerse yourself in the water. Let's, let's OM. Oh. Om, peace, peace, peace. Thank you all for being my teachers.